Now, you might not automatically expect Spielberg's 1970s blockbuster Jaws to be put in the same category as Ibsen's 19th century play An Enemy of the People. Still less for both of them to be singled out by an academic here at Warwick Business School as examples of types of leadership in a crisis. And in this Core Insights podcast, one of a series focusing on the impact the pandemic's having on both individuals and society and on how your organisations can survive it, Keith Grint, Professor Emeritus at Warwick, will be explaining what those leadership styles are and how they're best deployed as any crisis unfolds. He joins me now via telephone link, of course, and Professor, we'll explore the literary and cinematic examples in a moment. But first, I'm wondering whether a crisis requires a different type of leadership altogether, or just a recalibration, as it were, of the qualities that a leader already possesses. Mm, Good question. So I I think uh, in the work that I've done on the problems typology, I argue that there are three different kinds of decision styles. So management, leadership and command. But I I think it should be clear that, by and large, most people at the top of organizations, the formal decision makers, need to be pretty good on all three. They need to be able to work within a crisis and they need to be able to work within something which is beyond anybody. And they also need to be good at management. So I think perhaps the danger is when we fixate on one of those kinds of decision-making models and and quite often we end up in a crisis with somebody who may be good in a command mode but isn't very good at anything else and then we're stuck with them so i I think sometimes we get the inappropriate decision mode for a particular kind of problem or issue facing us and that's probably one way of describing it i mean the other way is i think that by and large problems don't come as tame, wicked, or critical, they come as a bit of all three. So the coronavirus problem is not just a crisis. It's also a, a tame problem in terms of the mechanics of the track and trace system and all that stuff. And it's also a wicked problem in the sense that nobody quite knows where we're going or how it will end or where we will end up. So I, I think in some ways the, the danger is to confuse a typology same wicked and critical problems with reality, which is always way more complicated and complex than the typology stands. Now, you're just getting a little bit ahead of me for the moment. I'll come on to the threefold framework of tame problems, wicked problems and critical problems in a moment. But for now, do you think that kind of leadership can be taught or is it innate? Mm. It's a million-dollar question. The, the taught or innate thing is it's part of two different problems. One is some things you can learn, but you can't be taught. So in that sense, you might be able to learn how to lead better, but that doesn't necessarily mean anybody can teach you. And the second part would be to say that even if it is innate, and I'm sure some of it is, even if it is innate, that doesn't mean that we can't improve it. So if you, if you just take an analogy such as football, for example, I'm not particularly good at football, but I know if I practice, I will get better. And there are some people that are innately better than me, but if they don't practice, they don't get any better either. So I I think in terms of the leadership issue, there are some people that seem, for whatever reason, seem to be more comfortable in those decision-making 
positions, but that doesn't mean to say that they can't improve, and it doesn't mean to say that uh, we can just distinguish between those who are born to lead and those who are not born to lead. I don't, I don't think that's the case. And I think the other frame for this is to think about leadership, leadership in terms of not big organizations, but everyday occurrences, everyday events, you know, that you can lead your children to school, for example, or you can lead your parents or some older people over the road. So it's still a leadership position, but it's just not a formal leadership position. And you're keen to make the distinction, particularly perhaps in wartime, between confidence and competence. Well, I think one of the problems that we, that we have in any kind of system which is locked into popularity, democratic or otherwise, is that we tend, and historically this has always been the case, we tend to vote for and support people who are personally self-confident. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are also competent. I think what they're good at is maintaining a, uh, an external persona that looks like they know what they're doing, but that might not be the case. And because we can't really measure competence, but we can, we can be impressed by confidence, I think what we do is we take the shortcut. So we assume anybody who is confident is, by definition, competent. And that simply isn't the case. And so we end up with people, certainly in democratic systems, that are confident enough to get our vote, but not competent enough to get anything done except get themselves promoted or elected. But presumably confidence comes as standard in a command model of leadership when you're leading from the front. Yes, I I think it would be difficult to be a successful commander in the sense that we're talking about and not be confident. There are lots of examples of of the notion of confidence being a consequence of action. So, for example, there are cases in in the First World War where military officers who are about to command or lead their troops over the top would stand up and command their soldiers to go afterwards and then be surprised that they did actually follow. So what appears to be confidence is sometimes something which you can acquire rather than something which enables you to do something. So even even the confidence thing is is not something which is uh, perhaps as clear-cut as we might make out. And one of the things you stress early on is that leadership, either in normal circumstances or in a crisis, isn't about popularity. Yes, I think this is perhaps the most difficult aspect of leadership and the way that I'm writing about it is that we assume that being a leader is about being popular and doing what the what your supporters or your voters want you to do. But I, I genuinely think that the most difficult aspect and perhaps the most important aspect of leadership is sometimes to disappoint people at a rate they can manage, in the words of Ronnie Heifetz. Uh, that is to tell people the truth that they don't want to hear. That's why I kind of use the um, enemy of the people. It's the equivalent of the Jaws film, which I also make an allusion to, I think, in the, in the paper. Uh, when Jaws starts to eat people off the beach, it's the mayor that wants to keep the beaches open and the sheriff that wants to close them. So the unpopular thing to do is to close the beach. Uh, but that's the thing that needs to be done. It's the equivalent now of telling people that you have to stay home or maintain two meters distance. When everybody wants to go out and everybody wants to mingle as we used to, but the the important thing for leadership is to disappoint people at a rate they can manage and say, I know what you want to do, but we can't do this at this point in time. 
And that's a really hard thing because I think a lot of people at the top of organizations don't like telling people bad news. Well, nobody likes telling people bad news, but it's something that you sometimes have to do. And you say it's important there to balance optimism, reasonable optimism, with realism. Yeah, locked into the confidence thing that we like to, to vote for people, we like to be led by people who are optimistic, who think we're going to be going somewhere rather than what appears to us to be pessimistic. And I think there, there is a real danger in just following people who are apparently optimistic but actually delusional in their, in their sense. And, and we need people to be much more realistic and to say that these things are going to be tough and it isn't going to be an easy road. And there's no way of saying this, but X is going to happen. Rather than saying, oh, if we all buckle under and take it on the chin, everything will be fine. I think that's part of the, the kind of macho problem that a lot of certainly male political leaders, such as Trump, for example, and Johnson and Bolsonaro, I think all three of them have embodied completely over-optimistic assumption about how their countries will cope and what needs to be done at the beginning of the pandemic. And I think... All three countries are now paying the price for that over-optimism. Now, I hadn't actually thought of putting this question to you, but since you raise it, the male-female thing, is there a difference between male and female forms of leadership? I mean, can you actually compare and contrast Trump and Bolsonaro with Merkel and Ardern in New Zealand? Yeah, now there's an interesting issue here in terms of whether it's whether there is a gender division or whether it's something beyond the gender division which might explain, you know, why Germany and New Zealand and Denmark have done so well and America, the US and Brazil have done so badly. What is also worth examining there is that what we're looking at are it's quite a small proportion of political leaders are women, so it's difficult to explore that gender issue in the general sense. But it's also the case that to be a woman political leader, you probably need to be better than a male political leader to be able to get to that position, which means we're comparing what I think are rather poor male political leaders with very good women political leaders. So it appears that on face level there's a gender issue, and there might well be one, but I don't think it's as simple as assuming it's just better to be led by a woman. I think it's better to be led by a collaborative leader, some of whom are women and some of whom are not. Now, obviously, the crisis now is the coronavirus, and indeed some people have been talking about it as a wartime situation. But what other crises might we be talking about? We're facing at least two other crises. One is the economic crisis, which we are you know, heading into, and I think the other one is the Black Lives Matter and uh, all the anti-racist uh, material, which is, which is now coming to the fore. So I think there are, there are three different crises coming at once. I'm sure Mr... Mr. Johnson didn't expect this, but um, he's got these three crises all at once, and then he's got Brexit coming up very fast behind. So I, I think there are lots of crises swirling around. Whether he or anybody else would be able to cope with them, uh, <laughs> we'll find out in a few months' time, I think. And that leads us to your threefold framework or template to characterise the kind of problems leaders will encounter. They'll encounter tame problems, wicked problems and critical problems. Well, let's take them one at a time. Tame problems first. What are they and how do you deal with them? So tame problems are something which most of us deal with all the time. We know how to deal with tame problems. They're sometimes called technical problems. Uh, they're problems that have standard operating procedures behind them. So, you know, how do you build a car? How do you turn the lights on? 
those are technical problems and there's a way of doing it and we know the right way to do it and it's about efficiency and we tend to get trained and promoted on the basis of being able to deal with tame problems this is what i call management in a typology it's a really important aspect of organizational life because if you don't get the tame problems right then the lights don't stay on so it's fundamentally important but it doesn't actually address the kinds of problem the other two kinds of problems so you can't really manage your way out of a crisis. You need to be able to command your way out of a crisis because now there aren't any standard procedures. We don't have time for these. We don't have time for looking for the experts. You just have to find somebody who apparently knows the answer and has the confidence to persuade the rest of us that this is what needs to be done. So a, a crisis really requires a commander who has the answer in their head. And if they don't have the answer in their head, then they're a failed commander. What I try to do is differentiate between the standard operating procedures of a tame problem, what, what happens in a factory, and then what happens when, when a fire starts in a factory, which is a crisis. So it's not about, even though you can, you can prepare for that kind of crisis, you can have rehearsals for if a fire breaks out. But when a fire actually breaks out, it's quite often very different from the rehearsal that you've just held. And what is a wicked problem? So the, the wicked aspect of the fire would not be the actual fire on the day. The, the wicked aspect of the fire would be how can we keep getting fires in these kinds of buildings? So there is something beyond the immediate that we need to worry about because these things keep recurring and we don't know the reason for them. So we can have all the standard procedures which will ameliorate the problem you know, before it turns up. So we have to get the building and the cladding right, for example. If a fire breaks out, we need a commander to be able to tell us what to do. But to explain why we keep getting fires in these particular kinds of buildings or why we keep losing so many people or fire officers, that would be a wicked problem if we don't know what the answer is. And the wicked problem approach is to admit that we don't know the answer. This is really not about expertise. Uh, this is about trying to get uh, a much more collaborative approach, so get everybody involved who might have an understanding of a particular aspect of the problem. So. It might be the fire officers, it might be the residents of the building that's on fire or the factory or whatever it happens to be. So wicked problems are problems that we've either never met before or problems that we've met perhaps many times but never been able to fix. So there's something in, inside a wicked problem which means it might not even be fixable, but it might be ameliorated. So take the COVID-19, it may be that we don't get a vaccine for COVID-19, in which case, you know, we have a different kind of problem. If we can get a vaccine, then we can manage it into a tame problem. So the crisis, what we currently have, will be over. We can vaccinate people and we have tamed it. If we don't get a vaccine and we don't have any way of ameliorating the problem, then we have a wicked problem and we have to work out what are we going to do in the long run if we can't manage this. And critical problems? So the critical problem would be when we have this crisis upon us, you have to be able to coerce people and they have to be able to accept the, co the coercion to stay at home, keep the distancing and do all those kinds of self-regulating things that we're currently undergoing. Even the critical problem is reliant upon self-coercion. I mean, it, it, it looks sometimes as though all you need to do is find a commander who will command people. But that command is still dependent upon everybody else wanting to comply. So the fact that we have a commander that says, you know, you must keep this two-meter distance, you mustn't go out with X or Y or numbers of people, that will only continue to work if 
people continue to comply. And that, which is why the Dominic Cummings thing is so important. It's not about the individual. It's about the message that that sends is that you, maybe you don't need to comply after all. And coercion is actually built upon self-coercion. We need to comply with this. Otherwise, it doesn't work. That's why the, you know, the COVID-19 thing is more than just a crisis. It's, it's all three problems wrapped up into one. And of course, as you say, it's essential for a leader to collaborate a lot of the time, but also from time to time to lead the charge from the front. Yes. So this is, a, this is the, the point about, um, I mean, one way of understanding this is that this is why you need to have a particular kind of language to be able to understand it. So if you're if you're in charge of an organization in the country and you say on one day, look, uh, this is a crisis and you need to do exactly as I tell you, otherwise we will get very coercive with you. And then the following day uh, you say, well, this part of the problem is a wicked problem and frankly I don't have the answer, but if, um, if we'd like to collaborate with each other we might be able to get through this. Now that sounds like inconsistency. It sounds like you're shifting from the command mode to the leadership mode. And people generally don't like inconsistency. But if you have a common language, then you can say that this part of the problem is wicked, and we all know what wicked problems are, so I need some help at this point in time. But tomorrow, if this happens, then I'm, I'm going to label this as a critical problem, and I'm not interested in your views. I'm interested in you doing exactly as I tell you. So that one of the difficulties with being in a decision position is to be able to flip between those decision modes. And if uh, your followers don't understand why you're doing this, why you're switching from coercion to collaboration, for example, if they don't have the common language, which explains that in terms of tame and wicked, then it's really hard to do. And it just likes it looks like you're just flip-flopping because you're completely confused by the situation. And you make the point that if you plump for the wrong leadership style in response to whatever problem you face, you're just likely to make things worse. Yeah, I mean, there's a strong argument that you know what counts as the problem is in itself a difficult aspect. It's not always clear you know, what counts as a crisis or whether we should believe the commander who says, this is what we have to do. This is why the mantra about following the science is such a, such a difficult issue, because the science doesn't actually tell people what to do. But I think the more important point for this aspect of the discussion is that if you get a commander uh, when you need a leader, or when you get a manager when you need a commander, then you can make a situation worse by getting the wrong decision style. And of course, as you say, being decisive is all very well. But it's important to remember, too, that you can be decisively wrong. Yeah, there's a good way of thinking about that. I mean, I think Modi, the Indian prime minister, is, a, is an example of a very decisive move to basically close down India within a very small number of hours, but not provide any mechanism for getting people home or providing any mechanism for feeding them or paying them. So I, I think just being decisive isn't sufficient. You have to be properly decisive. You have to decide in a particular kind of framework that makes sense and does what it's supposed to do. So this notion of just being decisive isn't good enough. You have to be decisive in the right direction. Now, at the risk of leading you into political waters here, how do you think the various stages in the crisis have been handled by the current leadership? I think Johnson was decisive too late, rather. I think we probably locked down three or four weeks later than we should have done. And had he been more decisive at that point, had he become 
more coercive very early on, then we might not have the second or third highest death rate in the world. So there's something about not just being decisive, but at what point are you decisive? And then what happens afterwards? And do you have a strategy? And are you prepared for it? And I think all of those things that appear not to be the case, because I, I think we were, we were under, underprepared because of austerity. We were lax in shutting down quick enough. And of course, now we have the problem of how you get out of the coercive bit, given that we, we haven't really got the infection rates down as, as low as they could be. So now there's all kinds of political pressure about releasing the lockdown for the economic requirements. But of course, we haven't, because we haven't got track and trace working properly, and because we haven't got any of the other aspects of the infrastructure working properly, this is a really, in some ways, more dangerous point. I, th- I think at both ends of the, of the time frame, the decision was wrong. And as you say, there is a time to pause in decision-making while you take expert advice, perhaps in this case, following the science. But what if the advice itself is unclear, or, as it is from time to time, or appears to be, contradictory? What do you do then? Yeah, I, I think you need to be much more honest and open about scientific advice, because we know that science doesn't operate in a one-way street. It's never black and white in the sense that some political leaders pretend. So rather than following the science as if the science is only one, it's actually explaining that you know, science is generating these kinds of hypotheses and they bear these kinds of risks. And on balance, this is the kind of risk that we're taking. But to pretend that there's no uh, debate within science about this is just to confuse people because then it makes it difficult to be able to say, oh, well, we're going to ignore the science or we're going to change what we think is the science. I mean, for the for example, let's take the two-meter rule. You know, when you've got well, some countries with one, some with one and a half, and some with two, to, to say that the science is determining what the distance is is actually erroneous. What you should be saying, I think, is to say that the science suggests that the closer you are and the longer you're with somebody who may have the virus, the more likely you are to catch it. So being further apart and being further apart for a shorter amount of time is actually better. But that that isn't the same as saying you must keep two meters apart, as though there's, there's no risk involved in two meters apart. There is if you're with somebody two meters apart in a train. So there's something about being more honest with the the way that science works and to say that these are all different kinds of risks. And the the political argument is that this is what your job is. Your job is to make a political calculation, not to pretend that you're just following the science. Because if we were just following the science, then we should have civil servants and scientists involved and actually making the decisions. Why would you need politicians if we're just following science? You were talking there about conflicts within a disputed area of action, the health realm. What about conflicts between different areas, i.e. the conflict between the health risks and the economic fallout? How do you manage the tension between the two? Yeah, now I I think this is really about what Aristotle would call practical wisdom, this notion that you have to be able to balance up the risk here. You have to be able to say not just in terms of uh, the economy can't bear it and therefore we should change this, that and the other, but actually there are different risks involved in all kinds of scenarios. So if you keep the lockdown going, we might be able to save people from dying or being struck by coronavirus, but they are going to get 
other kinds of mental illnesses or they're going to become laid so low by poverty that other kinds of problems will emerge. So again, I, I think one of the interesting things is to, be, is to divide it up in a binary between economics and medicine, for example, economics and health, when we know that those two are really wrapped together and it's actually a, a false binary. It's just different levels of risk. It's not different areas. You began your paper with a reference to Ibsen's An Enemy of the People, subsequently overtaken by Jaws, similar plot, different time frame and location. But why did you reach for Ibsen as an illustration? Perhaps summarise briefly the plot and explain what it has to offer in the present health crisis. So Ibsen's book is a, is a riposte to the problems of direct democracy as he saw it. The frame is a Norwegian tourist town on the coast and the town has just spent a lot of money, invested a lot of money into public baths for the next tourist season. And on the day the tourist season is going to open, the town's doctor, Dr. Stockman, realizes that the public baths have been poisoned uh, by the local tannery. So this will clearly damage the tourists. So he goes to the local mayor, who happens to be his brother, and uh, demands that the mayor closes the baths. And the mayor is not at all interested and says this will destroy the economy of the town and we've just spent all this money, so no, we're not going to close the baths. And then uh, Dr. Stockman says, well, if you won't take the decision, I will put the evidence, the facts, to the population in a town meeting, and they will obviously take the responsible decision and close the baths. So he puts them to a, a democratic decision, and the townsfolk uh, howl him down and call him the enemy of the people because he's telling them things that they don't want to hear. And this is a really important aspect. It re relates back to what I was saying before about telling people unbearable truths that you need. It's not just about being the kind of hero and taking people to great places. That The more difficult aspect of leadership is telling them that they can't do things or they're going to have to stop. It kind of runs into, I can't remember whether I put it in the paper, a piece by a German uh, academic called Enzenberger, who, who talked about uh, the enemy of retreat. And his argument is that so often when we're looking at what happens in history, we focus on the individual hero and follow what they did and explain the changeover in terms of their decision. So, for example, the end of apartheid in South Africa is, is run through the narrative of Mandela, uh, and the great hero that Mandela clearly was. But what um, Enzenberger also says is that the only thing you have to think about with uh, Mandela and the end of apartheid is that that wouldn't have happened unless F.W. de Klerk uh, disappointed his Boa supporters and basically said to the white South Africans that we can no longer continue with apartheid, and if we try to, there will be a civil war, and we will lose the civil war. So now you have to take up the democratic cudgels and accept that your period of control is over. Now this, of course, ruins the clerk's reputation. And that's Enzensberger's point, is that you sometimes have to be the hero of retreat. You sometimes have to disappoint your followers and tell them, I know you want to do this and you've always done it, but frankly you can't and you need to get over this. But aren't we on dangerous territory here in that Dr Stockman on stage or any leader in Parliament in reality may have to say to the people, you're wrong? Yes, this is a, you know, especially if you're in a democratic or a popular elected 
politician of some kind, to be able to tell the population that they're wrong is a really difficult thing because it means you sacrificing your career. And that's the point, really, that sometimes you have to sacrifice popularity for what needs to be done. It's probably the most difficult aspect of leadership. and I don't think it's one that we really look at or focus upon is the way that being a leader also means being the bearer of bad news. But in that sort of scenario, aren't you, as it were, leading yourself out of leadership, leading yourself out of office, and you've nothing left in the end to lead at all? Yeah, uh, this, is, this is something about sacrifice. It runs into um, a previous argument that I've made in a separate paper, which is about the nature of the sacred in leadership and whether, in fact, there is something... And deeply embedded in leadership, which is to do with this notion of sacrifice. And that in itself comes out of um, an argument made by uh, Durkheim, a French sociologist at the uh, early part of the 20th century. And, and Durkheim argued that followers, generally speaking, have a really strange relationship to their leaders. They want them to be godlike. They want them to be gods and to fix all their problems. We want our leaders to be able to say, don't worry about COVID, don't worry about unemployment, I'll fix everything for you and everything will be fine. And then when these leaders turn out not to be gods, turn out to be not miracle workers, but just ordinary people like you and I, then in Durkheim's word, we scapegoat them, we turn them into clay and we demand that they be sacrificed. And both that notion of us attributing godlike qualities to our leaders and then sacrificing them because they failed us. Both of those aspects enable the followers to be non-responsible for anything. So we as followers can go on complaining about leaders and saying whatever we like because we're never actually involved in the decision. That's something which I think Durkheim is interested in and frustrated by because it, it implies there is something persistent in the leadership followership framework. So followers are as guilty as leaders in trying to avoid responsibility. Now, An Enemy of the People is a play, and at the end of it, the actor playing Dr Stockman takes a bow, gets changed and goes home. But what do real leaders do in real crises? Well, I, I think this is something that you have to run back into an, an issue about. So why, why did you want to be a leader in the first place? I don't think Boris Johnson was assuming any of this would happen. I'm assuming Johnson thought he would be uh, leading the people through Brexit, and then that would be his great narrative. But it's, it's turning out not to be that. Maybe sometimes power is like a poison chalice. You know, it's, I, I think at the heart of politics, there's always a desire for power, but it's a bit like the, the ring cycle. You know, it's a bit like this notion of, you know, once you touch the ring... Once you get the power, then you are in some senses corrupted by it. And sometimes it's better not to touch the ring, not to want power, because if you take power at the wrong point, then you will end up in these positions and people will just regard you as, oh, here's the person that lost his power or lost his position or lost the empire or whatever it happens to be. Even if that person really is doing the thing which is required of them, that is to disappoint their followers at a rate they can manage. And finally, is that kind of leadership something that can be taught in business schools? In other words, if Boris had turned up at Warwick earlier, could you have taught him a thing or two? 
that's a good question. I, I think there is there is something locked into the educational system, which is about recognizing success but not recognizing failure. So, I mean, the last thing you want to be involved with is failing anything. And I, I think all our reward systems are built upon successes. But we know that when we're looking at wicked problems, because we don't know the answer, then there are bound to be many aspects of failure locked into it. But we tend not to teach people through failure. We teach them through success. And, and I think that in itself is a really intriguing aspect of leadership because by and large, certainly most political careers end up in failure, but we pretend that they don't. And I, I think we need to rethink uh, what counts as failure and how much we can learn from failure rather than just focusing on success. Well, Keith, thank you for that. A fascinating insight into the pressures at the top. Keith Grint, Professor Emeritus at Warwick Business School, talking to me, Trevor Barnes, for this Core Insights podcast. And these podcasts will shortly be expanded to include a Core Insights series on behavioural science coming soon.